the Appendix N Podcast, Episode 14, Pirates of Venus by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we read and discuss the authors that influenced Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax published a list of his favorite fantasy authors, and this list has come to be known simply as Appendix N. Every month on this show, we will read a story and talk about it. We will review the story and talk about how it relates to the game being played at your table. If you would like to be a part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for some upcoming stories. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And with me is my ever-present co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. I am indeed ever-present. I am everywhere all at once. He, he never leaves my, my side. I should probably charge him rent. Uh, and joining us for the first time is my guest, Chris Constantine. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on board. It's great to have you on the show. We always love to hear uh, new voices uh, joining us in this journey through the annals of literary um, stardom. Let's Huzzah! Say. Huzzah! Okay. Chris, yeah. tell the audience, who are you and what do you do? And most importantly... How big of a nerd are you? Moderately big one when it comes down to stuff like that. Uh, basically, I do a whole ton of reading of everything from fiction to history to science and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. I like to game. I've played doubled with GURPS, Splitium, Deadlands, and the various editions of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, additionally, I'm currently working on an RPG of my own, Dark Revelations, the role-playing game, which is on Google Play right now. The mm-hmm. blog itself is drevrpg.blogspot.com. And we will we will put that in the in the show notes so that everyone can go check out Chris's uh, I'm sure awesome role playing game. All right, uh, so we are just, this month we are talking about Pirates of Venus by Edgar Rice Burroughs. It is the first part of the Venus series, and the last part of the Venus series that we are going to review on this show. Uh, it was first serialized in six parts in Argosy in 1932. I think I might have said 36 in some of the previous shows when I was uh, queuing up this show. But it was, it was, it was 1932. Uh, at this point, Burroughs had been a novelist for 20 years. It, so it was, it was 20 years since he wrote uh, A Princess of Mars. And he'd been, he'd been cranking out Tarzan novels and Mars novels and a couple of one-offs here here and there um pretty much every every single year he was he was writing multiple multiple books um i i already gave a brief biography of edgar rice burroughs uh on on previous shows basically he he got his start with with a princess of, of mars uh prior to that he'd been you know Doing, doing every every kind of kind of odd job he could, you know, traveling around trying to support his his family. Uh, Tarzan was super successful; it made him super rich, and he was able to buy mansions and start his own movie company to produce Tarzan movies. And he had towns named after him. So at at this point in his career, things were were going great. Uh, at, at some point in the 1920s, according to Wikipedia, uh, Burroughs became a pilot. He, he learned to fly and encouraged his family to learn to fly. Uh, I, I only point that out because, A, it's interesting, and, and B, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff about uh, aer- aeronautics, I think, in this, in this story. Um, also interesting... Uh, two years after writing this novel, Burroughs divorced his wife, Emma Hulbert, and a year later, he married actress Florence Gilbert Deerholt. Good for him, yes. I suppose. I suppose. Uh, he would he would go on to become, uh, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he would, he would, he would go on to become one of the uh, oldest 
uh, serving war correspondents, and he, he, he was a journalist throughout uh, World War II. So speaking broadly, he was probably more successful than anyone could have imagined that one could be as a writer of science fiction and fantasy in that time period. He just made money hand over fist. He was the George Lucas or uh, Rob Liefeld of his day. You you might say so. I I have no idea how successful Rob Rob Liefeld is. Does does he build he does he build mansions out, out of comic books? I got the impression that he did at least once upon a time. Okay, all right. So you were comparing him to uh, Peter Jackson, I think, before we started recording. Yeah, well, not 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 in terms of of success, but sort of how his uh, his creativity had um, arced. Let's let's say. But we will we will we will get to that uh, later. Sure, you reach a point with your success where you can afford the not to be edited, basically. Right. So, like, like the, I, so Jeff, you you and I probably didn't didn't like this book very much. I think I think we should we should probably get that out of the way. Up up. That's that's up why front. I'm that's why I'm glad we have our uh, third fella with us. Because you were saying, again, before we started recording, that you have actually read, uh, I assume freely and of your own will, all of Edgar Rice Burroughs that is available through Project Gutenberg, which is a heck of a lot. Um, oh. oh, definitely. Like, I went through all the first five books in order to get an idea of the groundwork of the actual mythos because I had a friend that used to rant about them. Ultimately, the first three seem to be the most solid because it's an actual trilogy. Then he mm-hmm. decides to do one on each of his daughters, and at that point, you can start seeing him start doing the cycle. Are you, are you, talking, are you talking about Mars? Or are you talking about this this series? I'm talking about Barsoon here before okay. we get into the Venus stuff. And then reading Pirates of Venus, I won't lie to you, I had a serious case of deja vu right. as I was going through it, as we will discuss later. It ultimately follows the same pattern of story where some guy ends up on another planet and becomes the great savior. Right. Yeah. So and I think that what we can look at in terms of context is this is Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, what late into well into his career, he knows what works, he knows what people likes, uh, what people like, and he's he's happy to give it to him. Yeah, and if it if it if it works for him, then then it it works for him, and more power to him. The the, mm-hmm. the comparison I was making towards to to Lucas and and Peter Peter Jackson is is I I feel both directors are. Have have great I, I ideas. I mean, Lucas came up with Star Wars for heaven's sakes, but they're they're poor execution men. Like mm-hmm. it's like Star Wars is better when Lucas comes up with the ideas and other people direct and write the movies. And Peter Jackson, you know, but between the Lord of the Rings and the 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 Hobbit movies, Peter Jackson be, just became so successful that like he wouldn't let anybody tell him no when he when he had a had a crazy idea. That that probably sounded good, but really didn't didn't look good on on film. So so that's why I'm comparing both of those guys to uh, ERB. Uh, he he's I, I, the 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 beginning of this novel is just chock full of great ideas, and mm-hmm. and even even throughout the novels we're we're introduced to like some some really cre- creative stuff, but it's but it's told through the lens of this very samey sort of story that that we've been reading from him ever ever since a princess of mars and on, and all the way through 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 uh Pellucidar, it's strong guy with sword uh beats up bad guys saves girl the end and they all live happily ever after or for some version of that yeah yeah my yeah, the, the girl always the gets kidnapped at the end at least once so okay so in the beginning of this, I, I I actually found like the first like two or three chapters of this novel to be like the most interesting parts. Yeah, usually uh, by comparison to Pellucidar or certainly Barsoom, um, he spends a lot of time setting up um, our fella Carson getting to Venus. There's fully what three chapters or so of that. Yeah, but I, I I even want to talk about the stuff that happens before we even we even meet Carson, right? Because mm. we're because the first character we're, we're introduced to is Edgar Rice Burroughs in his office reading, just like reading his fan mail, and he he gets a letter from Carson that says, you know, if if a woman appears in your bedroom, 
you know, re- respond to me with with what she says. If not, discard this letter. And and he thinks it's a it's a it's a hoax. Yep. But basically, sorry. Yeah, and we're we're also introduced to like his like his I, I guess his his editor and like his his, his friend, which which I guess are ongoing characters that that we we should know and like through these three people we learn that uh um the the characters from the the pellucidar books david david ennis and um abner perry abner perry Mm -hmm. have apparently been busy interacting with with characters that i don't recognize from from other books like and and tarzan uh, having adventures in the, in the center of the world. They've built some kind of airship. They're cruising around. They're having a good time. So what, I, what I'm getting is, is that Burroughs is slowly building a shared universe between all of his storylines, which is so cool. Like it's, it's the precursor to like the Marvel universe and the DC universe that we have that we have today. I mean, it's, it's, it's one, it's one author, but mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And you can definitely see how he's trying to create a formation of some sort by using these people as a focal point to start the story. However, when you compare it to something like Barsoom, it's almost the same methodology where you're setting up, hi, this is a letter that's done after the fact to tell me my stories. And to push the information as a narrative as time progresses. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, in in, in Barsoom, at least in, in A Princess of Mars, he's... He's uh, editing his his uncle John Carter's uh, papers that he received after John Carter had already returned to Earth and then went back to Mars after after the ten years. But as as this story opens, like this story opens like like now, like as the action is is happening, he's he's gotten a letter. Um, and mm-hmm. and then and then we we meet Carson and then we we learn all about how Carson has these weird psychic powers. Which then never show up in the rest of, of the story. Yeah, I was yeah. looking at that there. <laughs> they, they're talking about how he has telepathy from a Hindu mystic, John Kabi. And unlike in Princess of Mars, where it played a pivotal role, because you had to learn how to translate between each other, and it was used as an effective way to set communications between these two, it literally is brought up in the, one of the first paragraphs and then gone totally. Well, it's, it's presumably how. Edgar Rice Burroughs knows Carson Napier's story and is, is able yeah. to tell it to us. It's how the text got to us. But, you know, it's I'm I'm amazed that he felt that he needed to devote you know what hundreds and hundreds of words to a justification for this is why I am able to write this story. I mean it's it's Since... it's, it's a device that that he had been using. Like I mean, he he also used it in 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 Pellucidar. Like he 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 describes how he actually went to the desert and and met some people who who had who had found the telegraph wire, mm-hmm. and and that's how he was he was he was getting the story. So like he's he's trying to, uh, like make himself up as as like this this journalist this sort of lowest lane, to the to the heroes. Yeah, it seems to have been like a common uh, narrative conceit of the era, but this is the most like ornate story uh justifying why i am able to tell the story that yeah. i've that i've read certainly or if, if not ornate at least uh superfluous baroque mm-hmm. if, it, if, it, if it ain't baroque jeff don't fix it um so so let so let's let's talk about our our hero so like we we, we already know that, that he's got weird psychic powers which he, he never uses he uses them to uh project an image of a woman into edgar rice burroughs's bedroom Yes, I, I felt like I should explain that to the reader uh, or the listener who may not have heard uh, or may not have read uh, this book and is wondering what what's up with the woman in the bedroom. She's a she's a psychic projection of Carson's psychic powers that uh, disappears from the plot almost immediately. Uh huh. Yeah, but and he's basically doing this to sort of verify that Edgar Rice Burroughs has the right like brain waves. <laughs> Mm-hmm. To to receive his transmission, I, I I guess if if that didn't work, he'd just contact some other fiction writer to write. Yeah, I his... mean, yeah, I mean, but start with the best, right? Oh, mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Yeah, you know, obviously, ERB would be your first choice. So Carson Napier is this this rich orphan. Uh, he he was he was raised in India, where he got his psychic powers, and then he traveled the world. Right? He was. 
Uh, he's he's got an an uncle who who was a rich uh, Virginian judge who who of course everyone uh, should know, know about and then and then he passed away and then his his mother passed away and he went to Hollywood where he was a stuntman in pictures and learned to fly a plane mm-hmm. and and went to Germany and 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 financed rocket cars and now he's bored with all of that and he's decided to go to Mars. Via rocket ship. Via a rocket ship. So I mean, here, here we we once again see Burroughs uh, sort of uh, uh, doing, uh, doing, doing a doing his take on a on a Jules Verne story because like he he already did Journey to the to the center of the of the Earth, and and now he's he's very clearly doing uh, from the Earth to the to the Moon, mm-hmm. um, which I, I I haven't read from the Earth to the Moon, but I believe in that story it like there it. The the rocket ship is actually like on a on sled rails and just kind of, you know, skis off, you know, you know, ski jumps into the into the atmosphere, and that's yeah. and that's how they how they do it. The curvature of the Earth, the ground falls away beneath it. Precisely. Actually, what I was doing is a little bit of research on top of that, just to see where rocket technology was during this period around 1930s and stuff. And mostly it was German, which is interesting because if you look at some of the writing, he keeps mentioning his German experiences throughout the book, mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. as fencing and stuff. And I'm wondering if that might be interconnected or not. See, this this is why we have guests on the show because guests actually do research, so that, so that I don't I don't have to. No, I I did I did some arithmetic. <laughs> I can tell you that for a rocket to uh, start from, from a standstill and reach the speeds that Edgar Rice Burroughs claims that this rocket reaches, uh, Carson Napier would be having to survive about 30 gravities worth of uh, force. So yeah. he may be sitting in a very well-padded chair, but that's not going to stop his ribcage from collapsing. Mm. Yeah. Well, he, he, he says he installed uh, shock absorbers. So... That that, that shocking observers. Yeah. So since since we've been talking about uh, the the Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, shared universe, I I guess Barsoom doesn't seem to be a part of it because th- this would have been after Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, presented his his uncle John's uh, notes to the world as you know as 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 truth and but he never he never mentioned it's to, the it's the same Edgar Rice Burroughs and he knows all about Mars. Uh, there's no reason for him not to warn Carson, Carson away. Yeah. So, uh, it, I, 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 so I don't, I don't know if you know maybe he sold the rights to Barsoom to Sony and and therefore couldn't use them in the in the Edgar Rice Burroughs shared universe. Um, well, certainly possible here. Also, I was in the impression that the Barsoom saga actually had almost a time travel aspect, where you were basically going back in time when you were doing the astral projection. Whereas this one's happening as a contemporary with Tarzan, etc. Yeah, but in order but, to get things set up. Yeah, but E E E R B giving us the story was was happening, like as the story was was being being published. So like whether or not John Carter traveled through through time, his his notes were getting to Burroughs, and Burroughs was putting putting them out at the time that they were being published in the early twentieth century. Yeah. So he 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 wrote a Princess of Mars in 1912, and I think in the book he says that it had been ten it it had, it had been like ten years after John Carter had returned to Earth and and died or or something. Um, maybe died. Yeah, may, maybe died. Like it, it 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 so it it was it was already after Carter had returned to Earth and been buried in that weird sepulcher. That that Burroughs had even opened the the papers and read them, and then sometime after that published them. But like the the publishing of the story happened in 1912. So whenever whenever John Carter's adventures actually actually happened, the the Burroughs of, of 1932 would would certainly have have known about them. Indeed. Yes. I guess that does make sense in the long run of things here. Ultimately, you have one single person dictating all this material out across different, well, material. Yeah, yeah. it's the same. It's definitely the same Edgar Rice Burroughs that transcribes David Innes's, um telegraph communications from Pellucidar. Right. Right. And but it's not the same Edgar Rice Burroughs that transcribes uh, John Carter's notes. Or, or else he just, just forgot 
because he had he had so many things on his mind. I mean, he 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 mentions he was in the middle of a real estate deal, and and he just he just hates real estate deals. So like maybe that pushed uh, all all knowledge of Mars out of out of his 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 mind. So I mean that that could be it. A little thing like Barsoom, it's easy to forget, easy to overlook. It is. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you you look up in the in the night sky, and like the planets, like they're they're just these tiny pinpricks of light. Like you can just, you can just cover them up with your with your thumb. So they're they're clearly insignificant. Uh, so, anyways, so Carson is 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 a bored rich guy who wants nothing to do with with Earth. Uh, his his mother has has died. Um, this is, by the way, about four years before um, Robert E. Howard committed suicide, because because his mother died. Um, so I, interesting, just just throwing that out there. Uh, mm-hmm. So Carson builds a, a rocket ship. He intends to go to Mars. He basically drops it off this this sled thing and just kind of like ski jumps into the atmosphere. And he's supposed to head to Mars, but he forgets about the moon. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. And so the, the gravity of the moon pulls him in and slingshots him around so he's pointing in the other direction, and he ends up uh, headed towards uh, Venus. Now, now he, he spends at least one chapter just sort of hurtling into space, not really sure where he's going, and uh, he's, he's very bored. He experiments with fancy cooking, he says. Uh... Yeah, it's well. He he thinks I believe that his uh, ship is going to end up going into the sun. Going in, into the sun, yeah. I mean, and really, there's only two realistic options when you're in that scenario: either it goes into the sun, or it just disappears into the void of interstellar space. Right. Um. So good on him for having a level head and spending that time with gourmet cooking right. instead of doing what I would probably do, which is cry and scream and get real drunk. I can understand that. Yeah, what 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 I like is that he was he was smart enough to to, to, to build this thing and and do do all these these calculations and and somehow build like a a, a livable environment aboard the ship with with it with, with a stove and everything but he didn't put in any steering mechanisms well to be fair it is pretty much a standard pulp trope that these guys are really smart but they miss one crucial thing which sets off the adventure in the first place when it comes to stuff like this you know you see similar themes with stuff like dark savage and the spider and the shadow, and it's just fun seeing how the things change over time. Interesting. So I, I have very little knowledge of those of those heroes. So, I mean, I didn't really hold this this uh, contrivance against the story because if you're writing a pulp story, you get a certain number of free plot contrivances uh, before mm-hmm. it starts to get fishy for me. Right. I think that's I think that's a mechanic in in some RPGs even. Um, mm-hmm. so, so like so so far. How do we want to compare Carson Napier to John Carter and David Innes? Is is he the same guy? I would have to say John Carter had a little bit more personality because of his background, being a Southern gentleman on top of everything else. It had a certain elements and fluctuations that influenced the way he responded to things. Whereas Carson feels very 30s pulp action hero in all of his actions. You know, he feels like a strong, striping lad. Mm-hmm. He's blonde. He's blue-eyed. He looks, you know, he's built like a truck. And he's basically a great white hunter for all intents and purposes. The other thing I think is that comparing uh, Carson Napier to David Innes from Pellucidar, right. David is essentially passive and reactive. Um, he, it's Abner Perry who builds the, the mole machine, who... Um, masterminds the whole expedition, David is really just kind of along for the ride. And by contrast, Carson is both David and Abner in one. He's the he's the guy who wants to do this. He's the guy who made the decision. He woke up one morning and was like, you know what? Screw Earth. I'm going to go try Mars. Let's see how that works out. And it, it, it seems, like, at least from, from the beginning, that, that Burroughs is setting Carson up to be a, a smarter hero than than Carter or David David Innes, like he's he's got these psychic powers. He built a rocket ship on on his, his own, and and he's a world traveling uh, uh, gentleman. And when when he actually gets to Venus, he he talks about how 
how fat he is from all the all the cooking and the and the idleness. So for 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 a while there, I thought we might get a slightly different hero who might approach uh, situations a, a bit differently from from the others that we've been reading about. But it it very quickly devolves into into uh, sword fights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while while he's he's not quite the genius at killing people that that John Carter is. In fact, I think he. He, he he is quickly overwhelmed, like in his in his first sword fight that that he gets he gets into in the in the Jong's palace or wh- whatever. But uh, he 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 still manages to kill lots of lots of people and and, and solve problems through physicality. Yeah, I think that ERB does make an effort to demonstrate that Carson is less proficient at sword play and uh, the physical stuff than David or certainly John Carter. Um, he's still able to, you know, fight off multiple guys and so forth. But it it, it takes a lot out of him. It's a it's a real effort. He spends a long time uh, sword fighting uh, a guy that John Carter would probably kill in two three seconds. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Burroughs does mention like how how big and strong he is. Like after after like a month on Venus. You know he's he's no he's he's no he's no longer fat. He's he's back to being like a big ath- athletic guy, uh, and you know again my my biggest disappointment was that these these psychic powers were just completely forgotten about. Like I mean this 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 was already after like the shadow had been in- introduced. So like I'm I'm guessing that's where Burroughs got the idea for these Indian mystic powers. And I, I was kind of hoping we'd we get a hero who would like you know turn invisible and like trick people but he doesn't he doesn't do do any of that well this is the first book of what four the in this series four five yeah uh can you um sorry uh chris yes i'm terribly sorry for have almost forgotten your name which is why i said it with that interrogatory tone chris you have uh, apparently read the rest of carson napier's saga does his do his psychic powers ever come up again in a later book to be honest with, not that I recall. I think it was primarily used for narrative control, but I'd have to double-check my notes in order to verify that. But generally, it's following the same archetype over and over again, where he basically becomes the hero throughout there. Uh, if I mean, anything, mm-hmm. if anything, it almost feels almost like a... When I was starting to do a little bit of reading here and cross-referencing, it was almost like a return to nobility seemed to be one of the big tropes throughout the entire Venus saga. Basically, well, the idea that of a fallen nobleman. Well, there's there, there's definitely some political satire going on, which which will which we'll get to in in a bit, I think. But uh, so I mean I mean this this book ends in a in a in a in a cliffhanger, mm-hmm. uh, and and we, we never actually have the scene where Carson like mentally transmits his story back to Burroughs, which presumably is is how we're reading about this to begin with. So presumably at at the end of all of this, Carson you know somehow finds a time to to send his story back to back to Edgar Rice Burroughs but we just we just don't hear about that about that happening i guess all right so carson lands on venus and it is it is uh, a bit different from from mars uh there's there's lots of trees um, Burroughs believed that uh, Venus was, I think, t- tidally locked. Is is that or, or or orbitally? It was like one one side was always facing towards the sun, and one side was always facing away, which I, I actually looked up on Wikipedia and is is actually not not true. But mm-hmm. I think I think astronomers of, of the time thought that it was true. Uh, well, and, to be fair, hmm. sorry. Well, to be fair, it was nobody really knew what was underneath the cloud cover for Venus until about the sixties or seventies. So. They could basically put whatever they wanted underneath the cloud cover, yeah. and ultimately, what we found really wasn't very habitable in the first place. So, I guess that ultimately he could go nuts when it comes to what he could put down there. Yeah, and it, it it makes for an an interesting world. And I think I think Pathfinder did something uh, similar with 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 one of their planets in their in their uh, Galarian setting. So one side is is always facing towards the sun and is 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 always hot. And one side is always facing away, so it's it's freezing cold. But you've 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 got, you've got this ring that I guess goes from uh, pole to pole, and it, it's kind of a a habitable zone. 
and 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 all life dwells within within this within this ring. Neither too hot nor too cold. Yeah. Right, but it, it's still apparently very very warm. because uh, where, wherever Carson goes, he he just describes how how warm it is because uh, it's I, I guess because because of, of of the clouds. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the first things that happens to him as soon as he gets onto Venus is he bumps into three guys um, who are muscular and almost naked. Yes. Uh, which is another mm-hmm. recurring Edgar Rice Burroughs thing, muscular, almost <laughs> naked guys. Which, which really, I, I, I have to wonder if, if, if uh, ERB was, was, was harboring some uh, 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 homosexual feelings. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It was 100 years ago. The whole cultural context was vastly different. Eh, I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, so uh, we're, we're, we're introduced to, uh, uh, again, like weird, weird monsters and, and people and the people of Venus. Uh, they, they don't have, they, they, they don't have like red skin or, or purple hair or whatever. They're, they're, they look like fairly ordinary, you know, slightly tan people. Uh, and they're called the Vespagens? Vespagens? Yes. What is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- well, Vespagens sounds about right. And okay. they were basically exiled noblemen, for lack of a better term. Right. So They the, were basically, yeah. So the, so the Vespagens, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, is, 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 not, is not a race, but like one small society on this, on this planet. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Burroughs calls them human, like like mm-hmm. he, he doesn't call them aliens or, or anything. Like they are, they are humans, just like just like the red men and the green men and the white men of Mars are 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 all humans. Are the wait the green men of Mars are humans? Yeah, I mean in in the in the Mars trilogy, I mean despite the fact that they've got four arms and yeah, I thought that I thought they were <laughs> basically thrycreen, right? Yeah, but I mean Burroughs refers to them as human beings. Hmm. Which is is one of, is one of the oddities of of Burroughs. He's he's very sexist, but he he seems to believe in racial e- equality. It's like like sort of, yeah, just like a- acknowledging the humanity of everyone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yep. So, all right. So, so long story short, he meets the Venusians. Uh, he is taken back to their. Uh, city and he spends a long time learning their language and learning about their culture. Yeah, Chris, do you do you want to uh, d- describe sort of the the what's going on between the Vepagens and the and the Thorists? Well, they began as essentially a culture that was stratified, but according to the Vepagens, they were very egalitarian. Mind you, we are going from a biased source, right? Until mm-hmm. one day, a man by the name of Thor, which obviously must be from this, probably stolen from Norse mythology, ended up creating an uprising in order to basically send the nobles into exile. But by doing so, they lost a lot of their technology and various cultural artifacts in the process. Like, one of the things that's brought up later in the story is how most of the pathogens are essentially immortal due to their diet and various shots in order to do so. And it was interesting seeing how that was lost as soon as they ended up having the uprising by the Thorans. Yeah, the Thorans are, they. I read them as a really thinly veiled um, version of Bolsheviks, which exactly. certainly ERB would have been familiar with. And even, I mean, even the name Thorist is... Clear is structurally very similar to Marxist or Marxist-Leninist. I mean, Thor is famous for his hammer, and that's kind of the, the symbol of Russia. So, I mean, it, maybe that's connection. I don't. I don't know. Maybe. But yeah, that's they, possible. Yeah, it, it, I, I I read it as as the Thorists are 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 clearly the proletariat, and whereas the the Vipagins seem to be almost like Ayn Randian, like they're they're these they're these. You know, rich, smart people who have left behind the lower classes. Although in in Rand, it's voluntary. Yeah, yeah well, it's the aristocratic presumption that the aristocrats are they have their exalted place in society because they are you know they're the best. Right. They're they're good at it. They're a, their society is essentially meritocratic. Uh, you can tell because some people are better off than others, so those people must be uh, must be better. Right. And in, mm-hmm. in at least in Burroughs' version of it, 
uh, you know, the the Vepogens just do all the work that their that their servants or the lower classes would have done anyway, and they don't they don't mind doing the work, and because they're so much smarter, they they do it better and more 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 efficiently than anyone else, and they're just their society is just is just better, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's basically being used as an example of a backdrop against the Russian Revolution, like you said, where they really shouldn't have done it ultimately. And this is why. This might be a rebuttal because of the Red Scare that was happening in the 30s at this time. You know, this was when you had a lot of the heyday of the Red Scare, and right. such as Germany's Weimar Republic, where they had the Nazis versus the communists during that period until about 1933, and we all know what happened then. You know, the when that's when Hitler became Chancellor right. of Germany. Right. right, yes. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, research, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, Bolshevik Re- Revolution was happening at the tail end of World War One, so this w- these were current events for ERB. Right. The uh, there was a, a very real fear that it was going to spread to uh, to other shores. But as as with a lot of the the other stories, uh, Carson ends up meeting people from both sides and. You know, ju- just the the regular Joes seem to be okay people. It's it's the leaders who are who are the the bad guys usually. Um, yeah, they've sold the working class a bill of goods because all they really want to do is uh, seize power from the. All they really wanted to do was seize power from the aristocrats. They did. They had no intention of uplifting the working class. Right, which is I believe is kind of sort of just how the how the. Uh, communist revolution played out in the in the real world yeah well um, certainly certainly that was the uh the perception in the west i think right so okay so the vipogens are scientifically ad, ad, advanced they, they have a serum that makes them uh immortal which is another burroughs trope i mean the people on mars just lived forever uh i think the the mayhars of pellucidar had a serum that made them live forever or, or, or was it a serum that let them reproduce without without men? It was a serum that let them reproduce without men. Okay, but it, it didn't also make them live forever. Okay, fine. I don't think so. Um, but anyways, but uh, be, because of the peculiarity of uh, Venus having this eternal cloud cover, they've they've never seen the sky, and so they they have no concept of the universe outside of Venus, and in fact they they think that their planet, which they call Amtor. Is actually exists inside a dish. Yeah, their maps are all hilariously backwards. Yeah. yeah. So, Chris. Oh, sorry. I was going to say how they thought it was essentially inside of a hemispheric bowl floating in a sea of lava, which almost is right comparatively, even though it's inverted. Yeah. You know, it's... basically the idea of the magma field underneath the Earth. Well, no, there was this. There this big point about how um, as you approach the equator, it gets hotter, and as you approach the pole, it gets colder. But in their system, the the hot zone was at the center of the world, and the cold zone was at the edges? Yes. Wait, that doesn't sound right. No, that is right. No. Yeah. yeah that, yes? No? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there, I, don't, I don't know. I just remember this long, long, surprisingly lengthy conversation between Carson and one of the Venusians about their map making techniques and Carson trying in vain to explain to them that they had everything exactly backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I find it really funny. And I, I have to wonder if it's if it's almost Burroughs making fun of him himself, because like I, we, we 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 talked about. Uh, when I was doing the the Mars series, how Burroughs is all about reason versus super superstition, right? He 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 he's all he's he's all about how how logic and and science can can just overcome anything. And here's a very logical scientific society that still has it wrong. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, just just a thought. Um, so he is. Uh, Carson is, is, is taken in first by this, uh, the Pajan family, and then he is prisoner of the Jong, uh, which, which is the king. 
and he with, within a month he's he's learned the uh, he's learned the language and he's learned you know what what history and culture they are, are able to, to teach him and of course there's a girl and this is really uh, where I started to marvel uh, because we're a good four five chapters into Pirates of Venus Pirates of Venus is 14 chapters long so we're about a third of the way in and we've reached a point in the story that uh, I feel like the prince, Princess on Mars got to within uh, you know a dozen pages that um, the Pellucidar story a lot more had happened by this point in the narrative uh, it just seemed like the pacing of this book was a lot more sedate uh, because he spends a he spends a good long time hanging out with the Bahajans, uh, learning about their culture, learning their language, uh, hearing about um, the Thorans and how terrible they are. Mm. Uh, he sees this girl in the garden. He's He's uh, is into her. She avoids him. He asks about her. He's told not to ask about her. Um, it's a big mystery that is immediately dropped. Right. Although, it, although unlike some of the stuff, it does come up again uh, shortly later. Right. Well, uh, this is this is about where, where the first sword fight happens because there's there's a bunch of people sneaking into the palace to kidnap her, and he sneaks he sneaks after them to them to stop them, and you know, un, unlike John Carter, he he can't just he can't just kill them all. He has to he has to hold out until until help arrives. But I, I think he's he's still able to kill like three of them mm-hmm. uh by by himself and he's he's conveniently not visible when the guards show up like he's just like behind a screen or something and the guards don't bother to ask how the three dead bodies got there <laughs> uh yeah yeah um so so finally after after all of this uh we 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 get to the to the actual piracy part of of pirates of Venus, like maybe like maybe two thirds of the way through the book, like first like first uh, uh, Carson is 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 on a hunt for whatever uh, weird material they they need to uh, I I I forget what the, what they need the spider webs for. Uh, it's uh I don't it's just what they make all of their cloth out of. It's okay. uh it's it's but it's giant spider silk. All right, Chris, uh, are, are you there? Sorry, I lost connection there. Sorry about that. All right, no problem. Uh, okay, carry on. So we were just talking about how uh, Carson and one of his Venetian friends go out hunting giant spiders, although Carson doesn't realize that's what they're doing at first, uh, and then it all goes horribly awry. Right. So he, the the giant spider bites his friend. He thinks his his friend is dead, and he doesn't. And Carson doesn't know how to find his way back to the city in this weird three dimensional tree world. So he, he, he eventually finds his way to the, to the ground, uh, and surprise, surprise, his friend is not dead. He was only faking. Uh, well, he had a, the po- it was a paralytic poison. Right. Uh, which, to, to be fair, Tolkien did the, the exact same thing. Uh, and because Tolkien is such a good writer, it, it took me years and years to realize just how hokey that, that, that was. Um <laughs> But anyways, so uh, they get kidnapped by vert by 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 birdmen, the Klangen, the Klangen, which is where we learn that there's a peculiarity of Venusian grammar, where instead of, of adding an an s to the end of words, they they add a kl to the to the beginning of words to indicate that they are plural. Yeah, at this point and for the next several chapters, ERB takes an interest in Venusian vocabulary and grammar. And he'll suddenly, uh, he hadn't been doing this up to this point, but suddenly he's referring to things by their Venusian names and explaining to what the translation is and so forth. And it, it kind of comes out of nowhere uh, at about the point where the, where the birdmen appear. Yeah, I mean, some of it's, it's neat. I mean, it's, it's neat because we, we haven't really had it before, and it, it's something that's, that's not just you know violence and uh, chasing after half-naked women. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really weird. Yeah. It's just that it, that it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, more or less. Yeah. So, uh, the, the Klangen, uh, are working for, uh, a, a ship of Thorists, um, which I, I keep wanting to say florists, <laughs> 
But uh, so they're they they are they are kidnapped and apparently they're going to be taken back to uh, whatever whatever the land of the of the Thoris is because the the Thoris need to kidnap uh, Vepogens because sort of like ideology uh, or idi- idiocracy they've they've forgotten how to do everything so they so they need mm-hmm. to kidnap the smart people to tell them how to how to do stuff I guess they've started aging which uh, you know I mean nobody's gonna like that right. Um, so Carson, of course, makes friends with all the prisoners because that's, that's, that's another trope of ERB heroes is is that they they can just make friends with the, with the common man where, wherever they go. Um, and there's a mutiny and they, they take over the ship and then they become pirates. So, so they become the pirates of Venus. They become the pirates of Venus in, I think, I want to say chapter 10. Chapter 10 of 14. Right. I'm going to say that, that, that you were right, because I don't have the book in, in front of me. Um, and uh, all, all the time that Carson's been aboard the ship, he's been, hear- he's been hearing, hearing about this mysterious, beautiful woman. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Duari. Duare, yes. Duare. Duare. And he he is unable to figure out that, that that this mysterious beautiful woman that everyone is in awe of is the same mysterious beautiful woman that he saw in the garden back in the Vepajan city until he takes over the the other ship that they've been sailing next to and uh, rescues her from from her her captors. Uh, and, and then we, we we sort of have the typical ERB uh, romance where he says I love you and she slaps him in the face, uh, and he persists until she finally gets tired of the whole thing and gives gives in. Which is a great lesson for for guys to learn. Right. Yeah. yeah. Definitely I, I, a period of his time for sure. Yeah. You know, just seeing this whole access, you know, like I, it really is kind of makes it kind of feel kind of creepy to put it mildly. I will. I will mention again that two years after this novel, Burroughs divorced his wife and married an an actress. So there's good yeah, again. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, foreshadowing. Yeah, I guess. Um, I don't know about that. So, um, so then they decide to become the pirates of Venus. I, I think Carson has some intention of returning. Uh, Duan, Duanye, Duala, whatever, whatever. <laughs> Duare. Duare. Yeah. yeah, I think I think Carson has some intention of, of returning Duare and some of the other prisoners back to their to their homes. But in the meantime, they're going to be pirates, and they attack uh, a, a third random vessel, and uh, then there's a storm, and Carson's washed overboard, and Duare gets kidnapped by some ape men. And the book ends after Carson rescues Duare from, from, from the ape men. So I feel like you're skipping over a lot of stuff, but I also feel like it's stuff that doesn't really deserve to not get skipped over. Um, so instead, I want to point out that the Klangen, the birdmen, uh, mm-hmm. they show up, they take, uh, they pick up Carson and his Venusian friend, they abduct them, carry them off to the Thorist uh, ship, and then they disappear from the narrative until well after the uh, the mutiny is over and uh, Carson has in command of the ship and has the pirates. Uh, it's it's almost as if Edgar Rice Burroughs kind of forgot that they were there. Kind of like he forgot about about Mars. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I believe it's mentioned later that the that the Klangen uh, only do what they are told. Yeah, there's a whole problematic racial dimension to the Klangen who are described as being very dark-skinned and singing songs that sound explicitly like Negro spirituals and who have no will of their own and only want to do what their master tells them because that's that's just what makes them happy. Yeah. So, you know, a hundred years ago... Different time, yeah. Let's let's not dwell on it. Yeah, I, they're they're also like one of the few uh, uh, humanoid races that, that I, I don't think Burroughs like refers to as as human. So hmm. I mean, there 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 is that. I uh, thought that he did refer to them as human in a couple of places, but I could I could easily be mistaken. Okay, I I could also just be making stuff up because I do that sometimes. But I mean, we've. 
again, like th throughout the Mars series, we, we had all sorts of different colors of people that Burroughs like referred to as as human. And, you know, John Carter was able to to be be befriend them. And Burroughs was 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 all about showing us like each and every side of the of the war of of the conflict and 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 how all these people were were right and none of them were 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 right and he he's also kind of doing the same thing here between the the the, the Pogins and the and the Thoris. I mean Carson makes makes friends on on both sides. Yeah, the Thoris leadership is corrupt and terrible, but the the Thorist working man is just the pawn of forces he can't understand. Yeah, so I mean I I, I kind of don't want to say that 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 Burroughs would would just deny the humanity at least of of any one race of people, but I also don't know what was going on inside his head. So, yeah, I, I, I think enough. he just he just wanted a race that was just alien and and different. You know, kind of. I mean, they're 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 almost like like androids in in other science fiction. Like they just they just do what they're told. Yeah, that's the impression that we get, and none of them are named uh, at any point. Right. I don't. I don't believe. Yeah. But it, I mean, it it is it is still still problematic, and if you're if you're offended by it, then then that's that's also valid. Um, but yeah, I, I I am skipping over over a lot just because a lot of it is the typical Burroughs stuff. I mean, there's there's fights, there's escapes, there's 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 rescues. Um, and it ends on a cliffhanger, right? With uh, with a bunch of hairy ape people coming down upon Carson and Duare and the uh, the Birdman that he happens to be with, um, and Carson puts uh, gets Duare gets the Birdman to carry Duare off back to the ship, and uh, then some evil Thorists show up and capture Carson. And that's the end of the book. Right. And pre presumably, I mean, Chris, you, you've read it. I haven't, but presumably in the next book, uh, Carson escapes and uh, finds some friends and leads them on more uh, bloody, wild ad adventures. Is, is that more or less correct? Uh, more or less. Yeah. Uh, basically, just keep going through the same cycle again. And it basically, I think it gets captured twice in the next book. And... If you know the, what your experience is from the gods of Mars, you know what I'm talking about when it comes to the overall cycladic nature of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. Is there, is, Chris? Is there anything that, that you want to call out from like this this part of the story that we've kind of like glossed over as like just something that you wanna that you wanna mention? Well, mostly just silly to fun facts for the most part. Like I was looking over the stuff just to see because they actually mentioned two of the elements by name. Oh yeah, Vicfro and Yorsan, and I was looked them up on the periodic table just out of morbid curiosity. Yeah. So they're transuranics. Yes. They're, and if it, I'm, I'm yeah, sorry, they're 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 what? Uh, transuranics. Okay. Heavier elements than uranium. Okay. Actinides. Mm -hmm. It was. I actually kind of wanted to see what exactly they were in the actual periodic table. Vicro is actually Neptunium, and Yorsan is Dubninium, which wasn't discovered until 1940 and 1960, respectively. Right. So they. And so, they're, yeah. To to Burroughs, they'd be they'd be you know fantasy elements, right? Yeah. yeah they would. Uh, science at the time would theorize that they were um, radioactive, certainly. But beyond that, I don't know. But there would be a lot uh, that Burroughs would have soaked up about them. And I, like I I love the I love the pulpiness of 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 the concept of of the T ray. And the and the and the R ray like like that like that is cool like whenever, whenever Burroughs introduces like like a new te technology or or an or or a new race like even if if it's ultimately like like hokey and and ridiculous like I I like I think that is Burroughs' strength like that like that's what what I enjoy most about these stories. Oh, definitely. Like when I was looking at the T rays. What the thing that actually set me off was how it seemed similar to the black beams from blaster weapons from Expedition of the Barrier Peaks to bring it back to how it might be used as a conceptual model. Mm -hmm. The difference is that they literally destroyed themselves as time progressed. Like, the weapon was ablated by its nature. You fire it too many times, it will literally disintegrate itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. contrast <sighs> from, from the R-rays, which can only destroy natural tissue, ultimately. 
Right. Uh, yeah, the that as a limitation on um, on guns in D and D, speaking very broadly, uh, that it eventually just melts. I don't think is one that has come up. Usually, there's like an energy cell that gets depleted, uh, or ammunition that is precious and cannot be replicated. No, the gun of... just the gun just melting. I don't think is uh, is such a thing. Most most of the D and D games with guns I've played have, have had like like gunpowder guns, not not ray guns. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I guess that's that's Barrier Peaks territory. Or if you're playing uh, Pathfinder, then it's it's Iron Gods territory. Yeah, uh, I ran a three five game in the waning days of three five, where one of the player characters, uh, one of the players, was so excited about the idea of playing a guy with a gun, and you know I would have been happy just saying okay make like a make a ranger um take your bow just cross out the word bow and write rifle and i'm cool with that uh you know is it conceptually but he was he you know he wanted to put ranks into like profession gunsmith and he kept track of how many bullets he fired and he wanted to know how expensive the raw materials for making bullets were and he just got really into the uh really into the minutiae of the idea of having a very finite resource. So he was uh, he was playing the Pathfinder Gunslinger class before there was a Pathfinder Gunslinger I think class. Pretty much, pretty much. Uh, which was sad because he was uh, forced to, or not maybe not forced to, but he chose to spread his abilities around such that there was another fighter in the game who was just better than him in every way. Mm. Well, it happens. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, I decided to do a little bit of background research just because this is probably the last time we talk about the, you know, space romance genre that Everett Burrow brought to the stage. Right. And I was looking over some old stuff. I think I brought up them previously how the three basic ones we've been able to find at least some elements to are Dark Sun, which we've already talked about, I believe, on a previous podcast, or you guys have. Well, Dark, uh, Dark Sun is, is you know bears a lot of similarities to Bar to both to Barsoom Bar and. Um, yeah. And 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 Dune. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then additionally, well, it's a little bit more of a reach, but I was noticing elements in both Blackmore and Spelljammer. Uh Blackmore being originally one of David Aronson's original material. Where he went more for a weirder environment overall. Yeah. And basically a lot of the magical items that were used in the original material was that's how you got cursed items, is because they essentially got corrupted over time. Uh additionally, uh one of my favorite module series of all time from the old D&D box sets was the old DA trilogy, which was Adventures in Blackmoor, Temple of the Frog, City of the Gods, which also had a tech bent, not unlike Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. Yeah. And you could definitely see a lot of the influences there in the material. Finally, I decided to go looking through my old magazines, and I found my old Polyhedron 160, which includes a inspired genre RPG that's, oh, that's based on brilliant. D20. It's called Iron Lords of Jupiter. Oh, you know, if I can stall for about another 30 seconds, I think I can actually pull that issue out and look at it. Oh, no problem. Uh, I think we can wait in this situation here. Uh, Basically, they obviously change things quite a bit catastrophically. It doesn't really have a basis on either. It's more inspired by it as such, you know, the more I look at it here. However, it is definitely going for a more weird science feel as combined with the backdrop of common fantasy. Yeah, the thing about it is that I think, and this is also true kind of of Pellucidar, is that Venus, as presented in Pirates of Venus, is a really neat setting to have adventures in. This particular adventure is kind of by the numbers and overly familiar and not real exciting. It certainly failed to grip me. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Yeah. But as a setting, it's it's neat. It's interesting. It goes in directions that a lot of D&D settings don't go in. Yeah, I, I, I kind of wish he'd gotten more into like – like what what lives in the in the hot part and and what lives in the in the cold part and you know yeah yeah iron lords of jupiter a polyhedron mini game of planetary romance yeah, i remember really getting a kick out of this when i picked it up in what's the date on this 2003 oh my god yeah i'm so old yeah don't worry about it 
Just say you picked it up on back sale. Yeah, but 2003. 2003 is a year that when I was a little kid was like the distant, unimaginable future. It was on the other side of the year 2000. And now I look at it and I think, my God, that was 12 years ago. Where has my life gone? Uh, well, you are currently co-host of the Appendix N podcast, so it, it has only gone gone up, my friend. That's a good point. That's mm-hmm. a good point. Thank you, Jeff, for pulling me back from that abyss. You're 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 welcome. All right. Do we have anything else to say about Pirates of Venus? Well, I feel like we should, uh, you know, address the the mission statement of the Appendix N podcast and say what is in here that could directly be put into, you know, adapted into somebody's D and D game. Well, I mean, I I think like Venus or, or or Amtor as a setting, like even even if you take the uh, Vepogen's view of Amtor, where it's it's this it's this inside out uh, 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 hemisphere, would make a would would make a great setting. And okay, so we have this world that is a that is a bowl, right? right? And the the rim of the bowl is uninhabitable because it is too cold, and the the very bottom of the bowl is uninhabitable because it is too hot, and along the sides of the bowl is where all the people are. Right. So that's a that's actually I I'm not sure that shows up anywhere in like the D and D World Builders Guidebook as an example of a a shape for a plane, uh, so that's something. Right, and like on on land at least you've you've got these you've got these towering trees so that like your your world is is almost three dimensional because you can you can go north south east west or up, right, mm-hmm. and. On the on on the seas, you've 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 got piracy and and naval combat and laser rays and political factions. The whole concept of you know having a ray gun in one hand and a sword in the other is something that I feel like I've probably said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I feel like it's something that D and D doesn't or has not traditionally uh, done a very good job of including. And I think that's a shame because I think that having a ray gun in one hand and a sword in the other is great. It's, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. Chris? Oh, yeah, it's basically they've done a few things here and there. Like you said, Iron Gods, uh, Pathfinders, Star System, Spelljammer, Blackmore, Dark Sun. But a lot of it's more almost they try to write around the high technology because it's primarily a world of magic mm-hmm. when it comes down to a lot of stuff involving D&D. In fact, when you notice when you start mixing tech and magic, sometimes it doesn't always mix properly in Dungeons and Dragons. Well, Path- Pathfinder at least ha- has made a concerted effort to to have like actual laser guns, you know, you know, not just not just you know crossbows or whatever, but like like actual laser guns and things like like stim packs and computers and teleporters and and androids within the context of their of their science fiction stories they 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 keep it from that like they 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 keep it very tightly locked into their science fiction areas so that it it doesn't bleed into the fantasy and like annoy the grognards exactly yeah but to their to their credit like it, it is actually laser guns not you know a magic wand with a trigger you know Mm -hmm. so so that's cool oh definitely all right, folks. Uh, I I believe that we have reached uh, the end of our discussion of Pirates of Venus. I I'm sure that this is not the last time we will we will venture into the sword and planet genre, but it is probably the last time we will be talking about uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, if any of you out there listening wish to violently disagree, if you think that there is a amazing Edgar Rice Burroughs novel that we absolutely should talk about. You are welcome to come on the show and defend your uh, position. We would we would be glad to have you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listeners, if you would like to be on the Appendix N podcast to voice an opinion about something we've read or something we've said, if you have any questions or comments for me, you can contact me through the Tome Show at thetomeshow at gmail.com. If you would like to help us read old stories and talk about them, ditto. The Tome Show at gmail.com. Please put Appendix N in the subject line of your email. 
In April, we will read three more Lovecraft stories, Pikmin's Model, The Color Out of Space, and The Dunwich Horror. In May, we will be reviewing three more Tales of Conan the Barbarian by Robert E. Howard. These will be The Scarlet Citadel, The Tower of the Elephant, and Black Colossus. Also in May, we will be reviewing the novel Creep Shadow by Abraham Merritt. These are all available in the public domain, so find them, read them, and join us for our discussions. I would like to thank my guest, Chris Constantine. You can check out his work on the Dark Revelations role-playing game at drevrpg.blogspot.ca. And thanks, as always, to my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. You can check out his work at jeffwick.com. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 14, Pirates of Venus by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Thanks for listening.